Hello, and welcome to the Jungle Brothers podcast. Today, Paulie and I are joined by Dr. Anand Rajan. Dr. Rajan, or Nando as we know him, is a practicing anaesthetist working out of RPA and Bankstown Hospitals here in Sydney, and he's a longtime member of Jungle Brothers. Now, Nando is not an immunologist or a virologist. However, he is a medical professional, and as someone who is passionate about medical science, he's very well versed on the latest information around the COVID vaccine. Being an extremely relevant topic right now and with a lot of conflicting information out there, we wanted to frame a discussion that would help give some clarity to some of the main concerns that are being voiced in the community. In preparation for this episode, I asked people in my circle to send through any concerns they had about the vaccine. Vaccination is obviously a touchy subject for many people, and we wanted to give some airtime to these concerns with somebody who is up to date with the latest information. In this broad conversation, we cover many of the common and a few of the less common concerns, such as the effectiveness of the vaccine against the virus, how mRNA technology actually works, if and how the vaccine affects pregnancy and fertility, the concept of herd immunity, and general hesitancy around taking the vaccine. In Nando's words, all of the information discussed in today's chat is fully referenced and publicly available, and there are links to that information provided in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we hope that it helps you to gain a better understanding of this unique situation that we're all in. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Jungle Brothers podcast. It's Joey and Paul. What's up? How you guys doing? And we're joined today by a good friend of ours, Nando, but Nando goes more professionally by Dr. Anand Rajan. How are you, Joey? G'day, Paulie. Mate, yeah. good to have you with us. Thanks for thanks for coming on. You've been with us before. Uh, you, you came on, I think it was, was it during the last lockdown to have a discussion around vaccines? Mm-hmm. It was late January, just before the rollout, which okay. was, uh, they wanted we wanted to have a chat about it so people were clear about what was going to happen. Uh, and then uh, as it's rolled out, um, a, lot has, a lot has changed in what affects us currently and what we're going through now. So I guess just to, to give folks a bit of a background, we're going to be talking about the vaccine today. Um, you are not a, a, a virologist, uh, but you are an anaesthetist. And I think in terms of, of us reaching to people within our community that we know who have half an idea about this sort of stuff, you would represent that person, fair to say? Yeah, I, I'm, I want to be very clear about that, as I have done with all of the other podcasts. So, I mean, the main re- reason why I know your podcast or I'm a part of it is because I'm a member of the gym. So, yeah, you're right. I'm an anaesthetist that works in Sydney and I work uh, in a number of places that have had COVID cases that have COVID cases. Um, but as you say, I'm not an infectious disease physician. I don't work in immunology. I don't work in public health. Uh, so... And the other thing I should say, I mean, for what it's worth is that I, I have no links to Pfizer, AstraZeneca, any of those vaccine producers or anything of that nature. Not that they've offered, but not that I would take it. Um, <laughs> but in saying all of that, everything that we're going to discuss today um, is has a basis on fully referenced, publicly available information um, that is freely available to all of us. They come from official sources and they all have references as well. Um, and I know a lot of what we're going to talk about is whether people believe that and why they believe that, but I should say the structure of this is going to come from something official. Okay. I like it. Do you think, um, we're going to, I'd like you to give a bit of a, you know, the, the basics of, um, how vaccines work and, and that sort of thing in a moment. 
But I think at this point, it's it's kind of important for us sort of to, to declare our stance on the whole thing. Um, I, I'm pro-vaccine. I'm pro-science. I've had one shot of the AstraZeneca vaccine a couple of weeks ago, um, and I'm waiting to get my next one. I still have uh, reservations about this whole process, and... And I plan to bring that up, you know, later in the discussion. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I kind of trust our government and I trust the, the authorities. So I'm like kind of okay with getting the jab. You guys? Yeah, I got, uh, I got my second jab the other weekend. So I'm fully vaccinated. My household is fully vaccinated. We're very fortunate. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm like the same. I mean, um, I haven't – I don't look into it too deeply, but – I know that the current situation that we're in, the only way out for sure is by getting vaccinated. And I believe that this sort of thing is has to happen and probably will happen more often because we live in a huge mega societies and this is just part and parcel with having freaking 8 billion people in the world, seven, and, and we're just going to keep climbing. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. You would have got vaccinated already in um, working in the hospitals, yeah. Very early on, so, yeah. I think there was it was in their interest that we were either working in a hot spot or a potential hot spot, and so we were part of the uh, hospital staff that were vaccinated as early as possible or as early as practical. So one of the the big things I've noticed with all this is that I guess you could traditionally say that there were people who are pro-vaccine and people that were anti-vax. And for people like us who are who are more or less pro-vaccine, you kind of always laugh at the anti-vaxxers and joke about how they live up, you know, where T lives and stuff. And, and you know, whatever. Like, it's, it's a bit of a humorous thing. Um, it's never really affected us. And, and anyway, all that to the side, what I've noticed through uh, this COVID vaccine rollout is that there is kind of this growing sort of middle group, which are people who are typically pro-vaccine and whatnot, um, but who have stronger reservations about the, taking the COVID vaccine. Um, and these are people, and obviously there's a huge spectrum, and there's people who are just like, hey, I don't know, I'm, uh, I want, uh, I'm, you know, like I'm thinking about getting pregnant and I don't know how that affects me. Or there's people who are like, you know what, I was cool with the government, but the way they're doing this, I'm fucking against this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's this, fact, not factioning, but there's this really wide diverse spectrum of people and a lot of them have hesitations and some of them obviously range all the way down to the the far extreme ends of that resistance um so you know we want to kind of try and get into some of the questions that people would be feeling and 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 i guess at any point through this chat um we're not trying to like um whatever we're not trying to hang shit on anyone at any different position we're also not necessarily trying to force an agenda i guess it's just trying to keep it uh uh keep it objective and have a chat about the realities of the virus and of the vaccines and of some of the claims that are out there. Um, The great thing about these kind of sources is that's exactly the narrative that they use. It's not necessarily trying to force anyone in a direction. It's just giving the facts of what exists and what we currently have available to try and get the result that ultimately just reduces harm from COVID. So you're you're right. I mean, as we'll talk about, there is a, a big spectrum between uh, people who are pro-vaccination and people who are who have, I think the term is vaccine hesitancy rather than anti-vax because they're, they're quite a hybrid group of people. It's not a case of, it's not as binary as I'm completely anti-vaccination or pro-vaccination. And I think once we unpack and validate some of those views, it actually makes discussion a little bit more productive. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a very important thing to mention. I, I know that. Um, yeah, I think those labels that we have, and and particularly with something that is as volatile and as emotional as a topic like this, when you start to throw those labels around and people are like wrongly accused of being anti-vax or or conspiracy theorists, whatever, um, it it it's, it it, it kind of shuts that person out from being able to engage in the conversation, doesn't it? Well, I think a lot of the conversation comes down to how people deal with uncertainty and a need to obtain some control over their own health. And we're encouraged to do that in many areas, but where you are told, take this product, um, but simultaneously told uh, you, your health is an individual decision, then it's going to produce that conflict of message. And that's a, a lot of the reason why we have hesitancy for anything in the first place. Can I ask, um, uh, how bad is COVID really, um, if you catch it? Because that's one thing that, um, you know, uh, people will will deny. They'll, they'll deny the fact that it's actually that bad. Um, you know, um, does it affect the, uh, like, all uh, ages? And I think that we can see that it has been the Delta variant. But is it, if you get it, say I get it, is it really going to be that bad for me? I'm really trying so the breakdown of figures from health.gov.au is that 81% will have a mild illness, 14% will have a severe illness, and 5% will have a critical illness. And that's across all age groups? Uh, yes. Statistics. But, I mean, the, the mortality sharply rises. Uh, so for 50 to 59-year-olds, the mortality is 0.7%, uh, and I believe for 70 to 79-year-olds, it's 33, just shy of 34%. Okay. And f uh, for a reference point, how does that compare to something like the flu? Uh, I, I don't know the, mort the yearly mortality. All we know is that this is a particularly more, uh, more aggressive and variable illness um, that can cause, especially with the Delta variant, um, perfectly healthy people to rapidly deteriorate. And it's the speed at which they deteriorate. Um, there's a particular concern. And if you remember where this all came from in the first place, this whole reason why we worry about this and we're locking down is this notion of flattening the curve. So if you remember all of those early images we saw from not only China, but in Italy, where you said scores of unvaccinated people who had fatalities to the point that the hospitals couldn't over, were overwhelmed by the service. That is the, that's the crux of what we're dealing with. You just have healthy people. You have uh, people with a, a range of symptoms uh, that suddenly deteriorate to the point that they need hospitalisation. That's what we're worried about. And, uh, sure, there are at-risk groups on top of that. So people who are unwell are more likely to, uh, to deteriorate than perfectly healthy people, but it can particularly affect healthy people. So the, I did see a few people, uh, cases pop up in the paper, I didn't really look deeply into them, but there was like uh, someone under 30 who died. Maybe he was 27. Did you read about that one? It was a male under uh, who was 27-year-old that passed away. Yes. Um, did you – Did you? was that true? Did, do you know if that guy actually passed away from COVID or was it something he had other illnesses? Did you read that one, Joe? Uh, no. All that I have to work from is what is communicated to the press, uh, which would be communicated from the hospital, which is a perfectly healthy 
patient in their late 20s died from COVID-19. Yeah, right. And similarly so for the uh, uh, woman in her late 30s who passed away about a week before. Okay, so I guess um, it's fair for us to say that where we live, New South Wales, Australia at large has been we've been pretty we've we've it's it's been a very mild experience for us in terms of deaths like you compare to other parts of the world the death rate's been incredibly low here it's obviously been somewhat worse during the delta strain but for the most part we haven't experienced a huge amount of um, mortality um the one of the main concerns that that people raise often is well like there's things out there that kill us there's the flu and there's all these things that we live with what makes covid any different to that and why the drastic measures if the ramifications of catching it are not that great? Um, For the most part, it's the range, it's the severity and the infectivity of this virus that uh, warrants the levels of of lockdown and restriction that we currently have. It's that people have looked at capacity of the health system to cope with the severe end of COVID-19 versus any other illness. And the, the thing that we have is that we have an example of virtually every scenario, depending on which end of the world you want to look at. So if you want to see what happens when you have an unvaccinated, unrestricted uh, population, um, you can look at, say, Namibia, where you have one in 22 deaths for people who've contracted COVID-19. If you want to see what happens in a first world country when the health, capa- uh, the health system is overwhelmed. You can look at any number of first world countries prior to vaccination and then post-vaccination. And given that uh, even in countries with high percentages of vaccination, uh, there are still cases of COVID-19. There's still hops- uh, hospital- uh, hospitalization, should say properly, and death. Um, and so we're looking at capacity to deal with the problem and where it's going to be rapidly exceeded that is the reason why the restriction is there. Is there, there's, even if you get uh, COVID-19 um, and you survive and whether you're young or old or wherever you are, um, there's there's potentially long lasting effects of that as well that we don't really know, right? Like the one that kind of, the only, like I don't think that I'm going to die from COVID-19 if I catch it, but I'm worried that it's going to affect my lungs and, you know, whether it grows something on my lungs or not, and I can't breathe properly, and then therefore I don't get the right amount of oxygen, and I live with this for the rest of my life, you know. And there's going to be some chronic ails that come with that as well. Um, yeah, is so that is that true? Like we don't quite know yet, but you could be carrying something for a long time afterwards. Yeah. So what you're referring to is something called long haul COVID. So these are cases of people who have contracted COVID nineteen who have survived but then have long-term symptoms. So there's cases of extreme fatigue, uh, unable to walk for any meaningful length of time. There's this phenomenon of brain fog. There is permanent breathlessness. Um, And it's good good that you brought that point up because there's a distinction. People often talk in terms of life and death, but what we really should address is that there is a concept of mortality and then morbidity as well. So it's where you survive, but you are, debilitated or unable to live your life as you had previously lived. So yes, there's definitely cases of that as well. Um, You're lucky. We are lucky. Our our community transmission, well, to this point has been relatively low. 
but a highly infectious variant is resulting in the spread that we are currently seeing today. Do we think the hospital system since the start of it um, has evolved to a point that um, we are better prepared for than when we, like obviously from when we started, um, it was fresh. Are we better prepared if there was like a, a, a real spike? Have we got more beds and stuff like that? Are the processes kind of, um, are, they, are they better prepared if we had a, a really gross spike in cases? The short answer is yes, compared to 2020, when we were finding out about this. So there's proactive and there's reactive changes. So there's planning for a projected increase. And then there is reaction as we start to see increase in infectivity. So people are adapting as well as planning. Um, I should note as well that I think there is a perception in the public with intensive care units when we talk about filling up beds, that the beds are basically empty. And that once COVID-19 comes along, then then the beds will start to be filled up. So at, at any given time, intensive care beds, at least publicly, uh, are close to full or at least are at very high capacity. We've, we've found ingenious ways of doing more and more complex surgery on older, sicker, fatter people. And those people aren't intubated for necessarily a day. These people can be intubated for multiple days. Um, And so the other thing is that if we fill beds with COVID-19 and then your loved one gets met in an accident and ends up in intensive care, where are they going to go? And and that's where we come down to. So capacity is already filled to a, a large rate. And so now we're trying to impose a variable on top of that. And And as well, the other thing is that we may have people who have suffered the severe end of COVID-19 who were intubated for many days, for, for weeks. Um, what do you do for the traumas then? So, yes, we are better prepared for this, but that doesn't mean that just because the beds exist that anything should uh, be de-escalated when we know that the growth in cases is going to overwhelm that system. That's why we're doing what we do now. Can you speak to any of the – seeing any of the effects – firsthand uh, and I ask this because something that that I've sort of that I've thought in my own mind and heard a lot of people mutter over the last 12 months thereabouts is that with all of this stuff going on with COVID and the increasing cases and and this is obviously uh, something that I'm very privileged to be able to say and think um, but I don't know anyone that's been affected by it right I've I, I've known a couple of people who got it you know, like you know, last last time I so-and-so got it, but no one that had any health complications, no one that died, you know, but then you see footage, you see Brazil, you see what happened in India, you see America, you're like, holy fucking shit, like this is going on. It's, there's, there's a bit of it's going on here, but it seems so abstract to me and I think to many others. And after so long and so much of this not actually seeing it in your own face, it almost becomes kind of hard to, uh, hard to believe in a sense. Yeah. And I, I think that is the issue with vaccination in the first place. So, and I think this was brought up in the last podcast, that humans are very good at dealing with a clear and present danger that's right in front of them. Um, but when something isn't directly on your doorstep, then it becomes very easy to think that it's not going to affect you. And it's one of these things where it doesn't affect you until it does. So, I mean, I can speak to you know, anecdotes of people who I've seen affected by it. I can talk about family affected by COVID, but... 
I mean, for the purpose of the discussion, it's no different to when you tell me I've got a question from someone who has read that their mate's flatmate has got COVID and they never recovered from it, or they had this phenomenon that happened from the vaccine. It's just anecdotal. Um, and so for the purpose of talking about it for a population, um, it's little more than just an anecdote. I mean, having said that, <laughs> to, to answer the question, yeah, I mean, the anecdotes I've heard is that when you have a genuine COVID patient or for the people who are close to me who have treated a COVID patient recently, uh, often there is a case where someone looks perfectly well from the end of the bed and is having a conversation and then you put a monitor checking their saturations, which is a measure of the oxygenation in their blood, and it's just low, like much lower than expected. It's like, how the hell is this happening? Um, I mean, that's an emotive description, um, but I think that's about the best I can add. Fair enough. Nando, could you take us into, could you go into how vaccines work? Um, could you give a bit of a, um, you know, obviously just to, to frame the sort of base of the discussion, um, could you describe in that the how mRNA vaccines work versus traditional vaccines? And if I understand that correctly, feel free. If I haven't, please feel free to reframe my question. Um, just to give us a, a bit of context there. Sure. So I'm cognizant of the fact that we covered all this in quite some detail in the previous podcast, which was episode 94. But to go through it again in a reasonably uh, short fashion, so a vaccine is a product that stimulates a person's immune system to produce immunity to a specific disease. That will then protect the person from that disease without actually encountering the disease itself. So uh, we have had this for some several hundred years now. Uh, it's existed in various forms and improved in various ways. But the, the idea is that you have a pathogen or an antigen, so be it virus, bacteria, parasite, fungi, etc. Uh, some sort of antigen is introduced into the body. And I should stress in this way that the response isn't as a result of what is induced. It is the response of the body. So it is, an, it is your own immunity that identifies it as foreign, that essentially marks it, uh, creates extra copies of how to defeat it around the body and leaves them in wait for later and then kills it. So you are either using a weakened version of the virus or a completely inactivated version of the virus, or we look at the fragment of the virus that is actually going to cause the harm, and then you're essentially inactivating it. So, I mean, the, the example of it would be if you set a really an amazing sword fighter and then they're nothing without their sword and you just take the sword away. And so they're just kind of standing mm. there. It means... If you attack that subunit, if you take away the area of interest, then uh, then it means it's essentially not able to infect in the way it would. And that is how uh, the COVID vaccine uh, works. So your next question was about conventional vaccines versus the COVID vaccines we currently have. Yep. So conventionally, when I talked about an inactivated virus, you would inject a small amount of the virus, so the actual protein itself, and then they would form antibodies to that. And that's what most people understand as a vaccine. That's like, uh, they give you a little bit of the thing and then because you got it, your body figures out how to deal with it. And then when you get, if you ever get the big thing, it's like, you know how to, that's right. how to sort it out. Okay. Yeah. So the example of that would be measles, mumps, rubella. 
Uh, there is an inactivated vaccine that would be, for example, the polio vaccine. Uh, and there are subunit vaccines, uh, which there are some to show in synergy when you group them all together, which is why you have the DPTs, the diphtheria pertussis uh, tetanus vaccine as a, a single vaccine given. Um, so mRNA vaccines work differently because we just had a pressure to be able to get a vaccine quickly. And it was found that if you can uh, find an antibody to the most infective portion, you could most efficiently produce a vaccine en masse. The other thing is that when you're making a vaccine in the first place, uh, if you produce, if you want to use a protein, then, I mean, I'll give you an example. So just say you've had some sort of protein bar that gets you jacked. Um, in order to be able to get that out to the country, you need to be able to think of the production, the packaging, the sterility, the transport, the unloading, getting it out there, making sure there was integrity. So in other words, there would be issues at every step of production. But just say the factories could make it with fidelity, you could just send them the recipe. Then it's much faster to disseminate a recipe than it is to actually get the product out. And right. I think that's essentially what it is. So mRNA is a message. It's, it's, it's like a Snapchat message. It lasts for a temporary period of time and then it's rapidly denatured. And so what we're doing with an mRNA vaccine is to take a fragment of the recipe to stick it in basically a, a fatty envelope or a lipid envelope, and that's what gets injected. It rapidly makes its way into a human cell and then uses the machinery of the cell to produce a protein which gets expressed on the surface. The moment that happens, the body arcs up and says, right, find it, copy it, get the message out, kill it. Um, the reason why uh, you have memory cells is so that if you ever encounter the same antigen again, uh, that the response is sustained and it is much more amplified. And so that is the reason for a second dose. That is the reason why we have a two dose um, uh, regime. And that is the reason why immunity, not only it, the peak of it is lower and the duration is lower, which is why you need that second response, which is why there are people who are seriously alive to the first dose. Um, that is an mRNA vaccine. So broadly speaking, you have DNA that gets converted to RNA that gets converted to protein. The way in which the AstraZeneca vaccine works is it takes an inactivated, I mean, car, like shell of a car, which is a chimpanzee virus. Um, so completely inactivated can't affect us and, and houses DNA into that it's introduced into the cell in the same fashion the DNA gets converted to RNA and then you're back to where Pfizer and Moderna works, where RNA gets converted to protein. Uh, the RNA uses the machinery of the cell. The DNA uh, does not alter DNA. There's actually no way it can. Um, conspiracy theory aside, that's all good sport. There's no actual way the design of the virus lets it happen. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. I think I might have muttered that myself over a few beers with, the, with Polly <laughs> earlier last year is that I heard that it fucks with your DNA. Yeah. And, and I think that that, you know, it's a very powerful thing to, if you hear that, it's like, yeah, it alters your DNA. It's like, holy shit, that's, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like I'm not meant to mess with that. And that's kind of like my, the center, the center of my being. And this, this outside thing is going to start to like, take a, with it. yeah, you know. Um, you know it, it takes a lot of effort to make something that will interfere with your DNA and do those things. It, it, it takes less effort to just do the thing it's intended to do. So the mRNA, 
Um, <coughs> is that as effective, this doing it this type of way, than generally using an actual uh, part of the disease? Yes. It is as so effective. We, 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 oh, right, I see what you mean. Is yes. it as effective? No, I mean, if the, if, the, if the end product is... Uh, is effectiveness, then this is an effective modality. So if you're talking about comparative effectiveness of the vaccine, then it's hard to say that because uh, I, I can't say that, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, which is an inactivated live vaccine, um, is more effective than COVID-19 because it's a completely different virus it's trying to treat. So that is a virus that is static in its mutation and we know that by vaccinating for that, that you can eliminate the virus. Um, and we don't have enough COVID-19 vaccines made in that way, which is an inactivated protein, to be able to compare it to an mRNA vaccine. So that's the direct answer to your question. But I think the thrust of your message is, this is new technology. How do we know it's better than what's tried and true? Would that be fair to say? Yes. Mm. Yeah. So to answer that question, I would say that it's, it's not new. It's just a newer use for it. So mRNA vaccines uh, were developed in the past for Zika virus, for rabies, for influenza. It was stalled in development because uh, there wasn't any necessity at the time. We found a way to contain the Zika virus. There's already a fairly effective virus for rabies and influenza keeps changing. So it was stalled in development because it wasn't an urgent need for it. However, what we needed was something that could be upscaled and made in production en masse uh, for anyone, um, whereas in order to produce proteins, uh, you need a bespoke production process and you need, uh, the, well, at least FDA approval at each stage of the protein production. So it's the protein bar example, it would be like there needs to be approval at the point of making the protein bar, packaging the protein bar, sterility of doing that, transporting it across. Whereas if you just need sterility for production of the recipe in a consistent fashion, that's far easier to achieve in a safe way. So that is the reason why this was chosen. And the adenovirus used for um, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is also not new technology. The idea of that vector has been known since the 90s, I believe. Um, is the AZ <clears throat> and Pfizer both mRNAs? I'm just catching no, up here. So the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are mRNA. Yep. The uh, Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is a DNA vaccine using that viral vector. 90s, I've always been an old school guy. That's why I went with the AZ. Yeah. <laughs> okay, makes sense. Um, like you had a choice. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Take it, whatever. Put it in me. Um, the, so the, the thing there is it, it's really the mRNA uh, um, technology has enabled them to expedite the process. Yeah. So, I mean, we can just answer that one head on. Yes, that, that is right. And one question is, one very obvious and reasonable question is, uh, it feels rushed and it feels like this is all going to happen in a year when drugs take five to ten years. Um. The reason it has been able to happen in this fashion is that it's a, a problem that in many ways can be solved with collaboration and money. So to quickly talk about that, because we did talk about that last time, with drug development, you have a, some sort of animal model, which will look at a minimum dose and a lethal dose. And then you have, uh, say for blood pressure, is a 
that he's testing on a small number of healthy volunteers than to a small group of the targeted population and then phase three where it's uh, distributed widely and then there's post-marketing analysis, side effects, etc. So, I mean, Pfizer makes Viagra and... Never heard of it. it yeah, I, look, I, I, I read it before here. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, I mean, if, if they wanted to, you could have development and implementation at the same stage if there was a clear and present danger that everyone needed Viagra. It's just that seven and a half billion people don't need to establish and maintain an erection. However, <laughs> um, what you what they have made a decision to do is that we will develop and implement simultaneously. And if that takes tens of millions or billions of dollars, uh, people were prepared to put that forward, knowing that if the product failed, that they would concede the money, knowing that if it succeeded, they could get it out faster. So recruitment began much sooner. Trials began much sooner in healthy volunteers. There wasn't a point where you would give it and then, well, I mean, let's go back to the Viagra example. It was a blood pressure medication that failed. So they had an endpoint. They tested it. It didn't work. They lost tablets. They looked at that. They wondered why. They found a new endpoint. Then they tested based on that. Then people aren't going to part with tons of dollars if they know their product is going to fail in the ordinary course. However, because this affects every human, everyone was in on the deal. And so you just had money and, and collaboration to contract that period of time. So seven and a half billion people needed any given drug. You could probably develop it in the same time frame. What sort of time frame was that? We talking 12 months? Yeah. Right. Okay. So from the beginning of COVID, it was like, ah, oh, this thing's going to blow up. Hey, let's put our eggs in this basket, come up with a vaccine. It's going to cost well, heaps, I mean, but we're going to make were- heaps. There were many vaccines across multiple countries. So everyone put tons of eggs into many baskets. But these were the ones that had established safety data in a shorter amount of time. And that's the other thing is that historically, uh, vaccine safety data has usually been evaluated for about one and a half to two months. So that's why they waited the two-month period before they gave emergency use authorization for it. So... Uh, people do make a deal about how the FDA didn't approve it. They approved emergency use authorization, but it had passed that safety data period uh, before that it occurred. I mean, even if people want to dispute what I've said, and that's perfectly fine as long as you've got a reference source for it, um, the TGA, which is our administration, took its time to be able to prove it as well. So there's an additional approval process before we confirm that it was safe enough for Australians. And that has been passed for... Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and I believe very recently in the last few days for Moderna as well. Can you talk on a very, a very real concern that is tied into that, which is that the, the reality of a, uh, a capitalistic society, um, you have huge powerful organisations at the helm of uh, business activities like coming up with a vaccine, like Pfizer, right? Big Pharma, everyone knows, you know, there's this, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're if you talk to any conspiracy theorist, they're going to talk about big pharma and we, you know, and it's no secret. It it is no conspiracy that big companies are good at generally making big money. Um, Can you talk to the, the people that, or or that idea where a connection is drawn between uh, they saw an economic opportunity. And so they rushed this thing out. That's whatever going to kill us, sterilize us. Who really cares? It's a big payday. 
and then the reality of that actually playing out and that vaccine making it into a country like ours and being administered en masse to the entire population. Yeah, I mean, one thing we can say straight up is that uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine is, they have declared it is not for profit for the duration of the pandemic. So they're not making any money off it. In fact, their share price has dropped. Um, so at least we can say that. The, the Pfizer and the Moderna ones are, I'd say, to be for profit, um, which they are. Um, I think to, to try and unpack this question, something that would actually be useful is to actually validate that concern, which is that, yes, I don't think it's conspiracy theorists that talk about big pharma. I think regular people talk about big pharma and it is one of the reasons behind vaccine hesitancy. So historically uh, the idea of uh, profit incentives and that vaccines are, are made by, by companies for the purpose of profit is one of the reasons why there's mistrust in manufacturers. They reached a stage where, there was such liability directed towards the companies that the number of manufacturers in the United States dropped from about 10 to about one or two, because they just didn't need the, the fallout from those very, very rare cases. The issue of trying to earn trust in people where there's a revolving door between government and industry doesn't help where somebody who worked in the government, they finished their tenure and now they, they headed up Merck, Sharp and Dome and you have that same figure that you trusted isn't then moves to a company for profit um, is also something that fosters or festers that mistrust. So I, I would validate all of those concerns. The other thing that I should say when it comes to profit though, is historically vaccines aren't great money makers. Um, for, for companies, you usually get one or two doses. They're usually given in childhood and then that's all the money you can make off it. Then they're vaccinated. Whereas a cholesterol tablet is something that you can take every day from when you're a young adult indefinitely, there's far more money you can make from that. And between the patents and evergreening them, et cetera, um, it's not necessarily in people's interest to be able to make money off vaccines. Um, but yeah, it, assuming the, or, or, you know, notwithstanding that fact that they're not a great money maker um, and knowing that at least one of the vaccines that is, uh, out there on mass, and uh, it's not just AstraZeneca; it's also Johnson and Johnson have said that they uh, their vaccine is not for profit as well. Um, that I'd validate that it is unclear. There are points that are opaque. Um, there is issue of profit incentives, and there is an issue of earning trust in not only the regulators but also the companies. But having said all of that, it's still producing a product that's going to stop us from dying. So it's still worth taking. You made a lot of good points there. Um, <clears throat> points that I, I wouldn't have um, otherwise yeah, thought about in the past. Um, what you were saying about uh, big pharma and just the liability issues. Um, just, uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's no such thing as small pharma. You don't make like a small startup company, you know, and, and tackle... Um, those sort of liability issues with a little bit of money for passion, do you? Um, so it only leaves a lot of people dissolving and then only Big Pharma exists. Um, I Look, I'd, yeah, not, not to say that Big Pharma is awesome. I don't really know that much about it. But um, it makes sense that it's it, you only have a lot of big companies that do that. It's a very expensive kind of industry to be in, I'd say, to make any sort of product. 
Yeah, and the other thing is that big pharma is such a large global term that what we need to look at is yeah. each issue. I mean, it's a, it's a large, it's a pejorative term mm. for the pharmaceutical industry at large. We should start up a small pharma company, Joe. I think <laughs> it's a cool idea. Now would be a good time. Maybe we can look into this Viagra thing that Nando was telling us about. <laughs> People have actually. There are there are now products where you can actually last longer. So I believe the dominant. Oh, I saw uh, an ad. I saw an ad for it come up during the Olympics. The so did I. Oh, oh really? What the fuck? Like this is. It was like four <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon. I was, yeah. I also saw a pilot ad. Pilot. That's why the guy doing the running race. Yeah, sprinting. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's when the company first. that Jaden Jaden was working for. Ah, really? Yeah. In the marketing that. What was the product you mentioned, Nando? Cialis. Did I, I ever tell you about my friend? Little the quick story Austria. time. I think you mentioned it on the uh, the last podcast. That's <laughs> the, great. Yeah, the, yeah. He used I to forgot. he used to be a rep for Cialis in Brazil. Okay, so he'd drive around just selling this shit to doctors, but uh, he'd be speeding everywhere. And it's such a <laughs> you lived in Sao Paulo, so many cops around, so so much traffic. He'd often get pulled over, but he didn't get. He got to a point where he didn't get tickets anymore because every time the cops pull him over, they check his license and they'd be like. Uh, you're the Cialis guy and he'd have a boot full of like cartons of the drug and he'd be like help yourself man and they just grab a <laughs> grab a carton and let him go on his way <laughs> it's a party drug now, if that's not a victimless crime I, I don't know what it is <laughs> <laughs> um all right so should we should should we get into some of the mm. some of the questions that have come through over the last so 24 hours or is now a good time to do that we're kind of sort of yeah unless, to unless on there's little any little. other questions about the background of this that are, are worth clarifying Nothing particularly comes to my mind, Paul. No, I'll just fire questions in between these questions as they go. I'm just, <laughs> sure. I'm just glad that we have that you're here, um, uh, and you're a smart individual. And um, I'll just throw anything at you. All right. So, oh, let me just let me get this one out of the way, which mm. may be one of the questions. Which is, uh, so the Pfizer vaccine does not use hydrogels. So hydrogels, uh, what is uh, have some use in electronic parts. And that is where the rumor begins that uh, having a vaccine can connect you to the internet. Oh, that's the, is uh, that that's the graphene oxide that people are talking about? Is that, are they a, is that a hydrogel? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't know specific hydrogels. All I know is that that class of drugs is absent from the Pfizer vaccine. So, you know, and I, I, I had a look but couldn't confirm there's any use in Moderna. But there's no actual way in which that can improve your connectivity in any objective measurable term. What was so, what was the concern that people were concerned about? Like how did the whole 5G joke There was, joke there was a video. Well, there was a video. Here's, here's an interesting thing with how I, I see some of the the conspiracy theories play out. And I, I mean, I love me a good conspiracy theory, right? So I give them, <laughs> them airtime and I'll happily watch some videos and go down a bit of a rabbit hole. But one of the, you know, at first it was like the 5G towers are infecting us. And so it's like they're, you know, they're riding in China, they're pulling down 5G towers because it's spreading the virus and whatever. So, but now it's morphed into, well, there's, there's, this, there's this other theory that's like there's a chemical, which Nando just mentioned, that's in the vaccines. And when it goes in you, it basically becomes like a, like a platform between you and the network and it, it connects, it makes you become some kind of trackable connected entity to the 5g network um yeah and then there's there's like video evidence of people who are becoming magnetized and having metal objects stick to their body due to this 
magnetic. Have you seen these videos? <laughs> no, no. I've seen I've seen some thumbnails for the videos. I'm like, I'm not going to click on that one. I've clicked on a bunch. I'm not going to click on that Magneto, one. Magneto, cool. Yeah, I mean, who would <laughs> complain? Um, let's let's look at the the idea. I mean, just just to you know, I mean, this will come back over and over again. But let's let's start this now because I think it will be a thread throughout all of your questions, which is what is research, and I think there is a difference between what a lot of the public consider to be research and what is you know, a, a scientific method of research, which is a systematic process of evaluating some phenomena to establish facts that are generalizable and verifiable. So in other words, you it's a way of looking at something that you can reproduce it anywhere and that anyone can reproduce it. So if you've seen someone light up and have access to things that we don't have access to, it means that that has to be able to be uh, available to everyone and it means that it needs to be reproducible by anyone who has the same conditions. So until those things are established, um, I, you know, I have lousy reception along parts of my street where I drive, so I would, I would love this thing to be there. But as much as I would want it, I don't think it's going to happen. Are you saying, and, and that's kind of in regards to like these one-off things that you see and hear and there's a video on YouTube that's, you know, hey, look what happened to this person. Uh, is that kind of what you're in reference to, that these are not repeatable, these are generalizable, these are kind of sort of one-off events that don't really have a bearing on this situation? Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure your counter to the, that would be there's more than one-off, there's more than one video. It's like, fine, but it doesn't really stand up to the rigor that is, I mean, the reason why experts have the type of stringency in testing process, et cetera, is because it's what's expected of not only the public, it's expected of people who manufacture this. I mean, if you want to look at it from a nice way, you know, if you want to look at it from the benevolent way, it's so that they feel good about the product they put out. If you want to look at it in a cynical way, it's so that they don't get sued. Yeah, but either way, it's the same end. Yeah. Can you talk on the, uh, and this is going into, I've got a list of pieces here that came through from people um, uh, over, you know, last night and this morning. Thank you to everyone who, who sent something through. Um, well, first is just on the effectiveness of the vaccine, the actual effectiveness of it against different strains of the virus. So let's actually talk about uh, the reason why we're proceeding the way we are. So the, the intent of the policy we have is to reduce COVID-related harm. And so the purpose of the vaccine is twofold. One is, uh, can it prevent symptomatic COVID? Uh, and can it prevent transmission? And the other thing is, does it prevent severe disease? So severe hospitalization. So in other words, one is, can if, you, if you're vaccinated, does that mean that you can catch it or not anymore? And the second thing is, does it keep you off a ventilator? So the data that we'd had was that after two doses, after proper, after you are uh, fully vaccinated with Pfizer, you had about 95% effectiveness from contracting symptomatic COVID. And for uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, after two doses, it was around 73%, I believe, after two doses with the appropriate interval between the doses. However, the number you really want to know is does it prevent hospitalization for severe disease? And so for Pfizer, it's 96%. And for AstraZeneca, it's 92%. So they all keep you off a ventilator. And that is the thing that matters the most. It's not so much 
can you transmit it? I mean, that's a huge part of it. But one is answering the question of can we eliminate COVID? And then the second is, and I don't want to say live with COVID, but can we tolerate COVID? And that is what we're seeing internationally now, where there are rates of COVID that are rising, but the hospitalization rate is a fraction of what it previously was. So to answer your question about is there reduced effectiveness against the alpha and delta variant? Yes, it is. Um, from what I remember, the delta variant's effectiveness so for Pfizer it reduces from about 95 to 79%, and for AstraZeneca it's from 73 to about 60%. However, with the variant, the effectiveness against hospitalization is preserved. So even with the more infective variant, uh, they, they will continue to keep you off a ventilator. Now, let's talk about a couple of things there. What is a variant? And secondly, why are there still uh, increased cases in vaccinated people and why are people still dying even after getting the vaccine? Because that's one of the, the elephant in the room questions. Yeah, cool. So, I'd like to know what a variant is because I, I thought the new variant, does that mean we have to get a new vaccine? Yeah, so eventually you'll probably need a booster that will work against the most infected variants. Mm. Uh, but I, I can't speculate on that any further than just that one-liner. And that it, you know, that, that's my current opinion. Um, I mean, just ask me. Uh, viruses are constantly being, I mean, if you go, want to go back to the recipe example, it's constantly being uh, duplicated. And with the duplication process, there's an error. And for the thousands of variants that occur in the virus, most of them are pretty neutral. They don't affect uh, transmission or they don't affect the um, actions of an antibody. However, in a creepily Buddhist way, it's not about whether it's better or worse. It's just, it just evolves to a point that it can spread more effectively. And so when there is a version that is more infective or more resistant to clearance, that will dominate and the way in which that works is just it, it's an idea of constant trial and error as it gets passed from human to human. And so this thing is constantly being written and rewritten and rewritten. But the ones that will survive the most effectively will eventually dominate. So in this case, the variants refer to infectivity of the spike protein. So uh, so the composition of COVID-19, there are several proteins, um, which is hard to remember until you realise that the mnemonic is semen. Um, so you have spike, envelope, membrane, and then nucleocapsid, which is kind of like a tank around the actual material itself. And we should address a virus is basically a, a particle that needs an active living host in order to replicate itself. It has no ability to be able to replicate on its own like a cell does. So it breaks into a cell, uses the machinery of the cell to replicate itself into overdrive, and then eventually that cell dies, releasing the virus throughout, and then the process repeats, which is why viral symptoms occur so early compared to, say, a bacterial infection, which have actual cells that need to reproduce, etc. Um, so... When you've got a mutation in the spike protein, that's what we worry about because the spike, we, we know that it can't enter human cells with that spike protein. And so what happens is a spike fuses to a human cell. It enters into that cell. And then the various other parts of the, of the COVID-19 
virus then assist assembly and then uh, and then it gets spread. So where the subunits, so in other words, you've got those, those cute little red spikes or, that we see on the image, uh, mutate, then part of the componentry of that means that it fuses more efficiently to a cell or that the effect of the antibodies becomes limited. And when that happens, it means it just goes about its business without anyone being able to stop it. So a variant is a, uh, is a virus that allows more efficient transmission. The spike protein is needed to enter the cell. So anything that makes that process more easily will be more effectively transmitted. I talked a lot, but I hope that answers the question. Yeah, it gets in there. So you're saying, and so the what what is it that's actually changing when you get a new variation? Yeah, so it's a, it changes to that spike protein. Right. So we need the spike protein to enter the human cell, and where that changes, then that is what is changing the infectivity. And just to confirm, are spike proteins a part of the vac- some vaccines as well? Yeah, so what they realized is that if you need the spike protein to enter the cell, that the most efficient way is to produce an antibody to the spike protein. So we remember the sword fighter example, it's basically a means of taking the sword away. Right, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're saying that's a, that's, there's, there's a spike protein which is part of the delivery of the virus, but then there's also a spike protein that's part of the delivery of the vaccine. No, what I'm saying is that uh, the spike protein is what is recognized by the body and that is what the antibody is produced to. So in other words, when COVID gets into the body, the antibodies are to that spike protein. So you can imagine you're basically just neutralizing the spike proteins on all of the COVID uh, particles so that they can't get into the human cell. So if you think of uh, you know, the idea, if you want to go with the recipe example of breaking into a printing press, this is just a means of recognizing that car and stopping it from being able to enter into the building in the first place. So it's recognizing that spike protein, the antibody is to that spike protein. So then you've got these viruses that are bouncing around, unable to enter the cells, and then they get recognized and, and destroyed. Okay, that makes sense. Could you talk to me, uh, could you talk to us about the transmission rates for vaccinated individuals or populations versus unvaccinated? And, I, and I, I'm throwing around some, this is just anecdotal stuff. People have spoken about, I've heard, heard Israel mentioned a bunch of times, apparently huge rates of um, vaccinations, but also increasing rates of infection. I've got no idea what hospitalizations are like. Um, that's sort of, that's kind of the argument. That is uh, the continuing unknown, which is uh, to what extent the vaccines prevent transmission. So that is why we continue the physical distancing measures until you have a proportion of the population that's vaccinated so that you have relative herd immunity. So uh, numbers that I remember in my mind for no good reason is that the transmission is uh, decreased by at least 30 to 40%, but exactly the source of that, I can't tell you right now. So I will have to do that. I'm happy to do that and then send it to you so you can follow something up. But uh, to go with the Israel example, that is a country where you have a high proportion of vaccinated patient, uh, vaccinated people. Um, yeah, as as ver- just because people are vaccinated does not necessarily mean they can't transmit COVID. 
we know that it can reduce that. And it's the confounder is that as a population becomes increasingly vaccinated, then it will be seen that it's vaccinated people that are spreading COVID. But one thing we know is that, um, is that we know that the vaccinated people are spreading it at a lower rate. And we know that if they are a vector of it, that there's at least evidence that it's not being, it's not manifesting in them to a, to a great extent. I don't know whether that will then mean it's less likely to spread. Um, again, that's a lengthy answer, but I guess the, the take home points from that is that yes, there is a substantial drop in transmission. Uh, the comparator to unvaccinated people is unclear. But the end point is that there's less people in hospitals. But the confounder to that is that as people are more vaccinated, it's hard to be able to compare. I see. So there is still a, so in regards to the transmissibility of it, that's still a bit of an unknown and that's kind of, that's to play out. Yeah. And remember, we talk about 95% effective and it pre prevents hospitalization by 96 and 92%. Uh, that's how you end up with figures that oh, this person had two doses of their vaccine, they died, or they had two doses of their vaccine, they end up in hospital. Um, those, but yeah, those people are out, see, those numbers are out there. Yeah, but if you take that, you can't extrapolate that to another part of the world that has a fairly low rate of vaccination and go, well, we shouldn't bother. It, it means that you will still have a, a hospitalization and death rate, but uh, the figure I last saw, it's, it, it went from one in 50 to one in 800 in the UK. So it's a huge drop in in the consequence of it. That kind of leads me into the next one, um, which there's there's a couple of parts to this. Is uh, is there? I'll kind of lay these these two or three on you, and you can you can make it from what you will. Um, is natural immunity a thing, and is it superior to vaccination? I don't actually understand. I've, I've obviously we're all aware of you know the concept of herd immunity. It's been thrown around a lot. Is that something that's actually played out in any country or any population through this? And if it has, do we know it to be uh, superior in protecting people when compared to vaccinations? So let's address it in terms of COVID nineteen. So the natural immunity is variable. And because there are such low numbers, it means that we, we have no herd immunity to work off to see whether that's actually a benefit, which is why the current recommendation is if you have had COVID-19, that you should get vaccinated. Um, that's the short answer. Um, is, that, to sorry, is, is that saying that there's just not enough data because there's not enough consistency in any one group of people, uh, inconsistency to the, to the variables to be able to say, yes, this is what we found? Yes. So uh, I've seen one paper talking about six months of immunity or eight months of immunity, but exactly what that immunity is, the extent to which it will protect. Does that mean that it prevents you getting on a ventilator? Does that mean that you'll get COVID and be kind of sick? You'll get COVID and you'll not be sick at all. Uh, it's unclear at the moment, but I, I guess when we talk about natural immunity, um, there's, it's the same thing in its own way of long haul COVID of actually getting the disease. So for example, it means that let's say you've got chicken pox. Does that mean your immunity is different to the vaccine? Well, you can have chicken pox and have permanent scarring from it, have immunity from that. 
So you can have long haul symptoms from getting the disease as well. Um, from that gives you natural immunity, but at a price. So we don't want to impose that on people. Um, but the current recommendation is uh, vaccinate even if you have had COVID-19 at some point in the past. Did, um, <clears throat> did Sweden take, was Sweden an example of um, their response? Did they not um, try to work towards herd, herd immunity initially? I believe it was the Netherlands, and I don't know the result of it. Mm-hmm. I know that the UK talked about it and very quickly abandoned that strategy. Mm. I want to ask a side question, um, and I just wanted to know, like, uh, obviously you're a, a doctor and you've studied, so you've got all this knowledge on cells and the human body and how all that works. Where do you get, like, your information from, like, all the statistics, say? Um, where do you read them from? Do you have uh, journals that you, you read or do you have trusted news sources or medical resources that you, you look at or, or do you get data from your hospital? Um, I think the most accessible answer would be for this issue start at health.gov.au. The, the ATAGI, so the Australian uh, Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, has a constantly updated clinical guidance book you can download it for free. It goes through everything that I've talked about. It goes through all of the numbers that's been continually updated as we have more information. The CDC is doing the same thing uh, and, and the United Kingdom has a similar setup. So for all of these, um, and I think this is one global message I'd have is when people hear something from someone, find the original source and then read that and then go to that original reference. Um, I mean, you know, it's, there's a difference between Google and Google Scholar. Um, there's PubMed that's freely available and accessible. Uh, and to an extent, those uh, some papers of those are behind the paywall and some of them are freely available. To answer your question of what I do in my clinical practice, yeah, I mean, I have journals I've got access to through our college, through the university, there's Medline, et cetera. And I would look at papers for a separate clinical issue. But that's different to what we're talking about today. Oh, okay, actually, I, sh- I shouldn't say it like that. It is quite related to what we're talking about today, but the accessibility of information um, is far clearer for COVID-19. And uh, ATAGI, um, excuse me, I, I don't really know, like uh, that's funded by the government? Yes. But it's independent of parliament? Like, like for, say, for people who think that um, the information coming out of ATAGI could be tainted because, you know, it's, it's basically spreading the government's agenda... Uh, are they somehow, is there somehow, they're, they're disconnected there to stop something like that happening? So they're a technical advisory group of the Australian government. Uh-huh. So they're part of the Department of Health. They will then provide advice to the Minister for Health on the immunisation program and its related matters, including the strength of evidence for, uh, for whatever vaccines may exist. And then that is implemented by the minister and other people. So they're an advisory group from the Minister of Health, from the from the uh, Department of from. Let me start that all again. They're part of the Department of Health. Okay. Can I ask the uh, one of one of the ones one of the questions that came through from folks um, was relevant to potential concerns. And, and when I say this, you know, I, I asked people to send me 
their questions and I said, send me your questions and I'm obviously, I'm not going to say who asked what because I know that this is a delicate subject and that's something that you might seem a bit ridiculous by asking some of these things. Oh. Um, but, but of course, like if it's a concern, then you should ask about it and you should have that concern, you know, responded to. Um, and one of the ones that came up a couple of times was concerns around the vaccine and um, pregnancy or trying to get pregnant and or breastfeeding. Um, are there any known, you know, are there any known sort of uh, contraindications there or, or uh, like has this even been studied or spoken about? That you yeah, know so the, the one-liner is that it should be, the current recommendation is that it should be routinely offered to any pregnant or breastfeeding woman. Uh, so why has the pregnancy advice changed? It changed uh, late June, I believe. Uh, there's an increase in real-world safety data uh, the pregnant populations were excluded from the initial first clinical studies. Um, it's now been found that the immune response in pregnant women is similar to non-pregnant women. Um, and the other thing is that through maternal transfer in breast milk, there may be, or, you know, or, or through placental transfer, sorry, I, uh, not breast milk, but potential placental crossover, there may be even benefit to the baby. So there may be some benefit through that. Uh, but yes, because we didn't have the real world safety data and because it wasn't studied in that population, uh, pregnant populations usually have more conservative advice. We usually wait a longer period of time. Um, but as that advice has come to light and as we've seen potential benefit, it is now recommended routinely for pregnant and breastfeeding women. The other thing is, we'll look at the risk. So for COVID-19 risk in pregnancy, there's a five-fold risk of needing hospital admission, two to three times the risk of uh, needing intensive care, three times the risk of being on the ventilator. For the baby itself, there is a one and a half time risk of being born prematurely, uh, a threefold risk of uh, requiring some special care. So knowing what we know now, I should maintain that the current advice is for the Pfizer vaccine. So this is one case where we have the data for that. And so that uh, vaccine is recommended for pregnant women. Um, can you clarify what real-world safety data is? It means that we've just, as they have rolled it out and they have given it to people, uh, it means that we have, uh, rather than being tested in a lab, we have observed side effects for a particular period of time. And so we have taken that, collated it, and then been able to make a conclusion. Okay. I think one of the one of the things that's, that's, um, that is... Uh, interesting or important to note relevant to this whole discussion but particularly that point is that there's like it's a it's all a numbers correct me if i'm wrong but it's it's all a numbers game so it's like look this vaccine um we don't guarantee that it works a hundred percent but we guarantee that it works for most people most of the time like that it's it you know so that means there's always going to be a minority who are negatively potentially negatively affected by it as is the case with anything it's like you're allowed to drive your car. There's a minority of people who will die today because they're allowed to drive a car, right? Um, when you're then talking about pregnancy and, and childbirth and stuff, it's like, well, they, I, I even feel this myself having a, you know, a, a, a baby at home. Uh, it's, it's almost like you want more concrete assurance that it's going to be okay. Because it's like, yeah, but I'm, if I'm taking this thing and it's affecting my baby, I need to fucking know inconclusively that it's going to be okay. And I feel like that's sort of underpinning this whole thing is like 
there, there has to be an acknowledgement from everyone that there's no guarantee, it's not 100% on anything. And I find that's, a, that's just a hard kind of truth to get, to get my head around when I'm looking at babies and pregnant women and stuff. Sure. And I think rather than sweep it under the rug and say, uh, you know, this is what we have now and it really is safe and trust this resource is to validate that. Acknowledge mm-hmm. that there is uncertainty with any vaccine. <clears throat> we 100% acknowledge that. But we also 100% acknowledge that knowing this and not doing this, that there is this data showing that it's more likely they'll end up in intensive care. So with the best knowledge that we have now, this is the reason why we're proceeding the way we're doing, because the aim at the end of the day, at the end of the day that I will continue to say is that it's reducing COVID-19 related harm. So one thing we can say is that it's, it's a harm reduction strategy, but I completely acknowledge there's uncertainty. The side effects. Can I, sorry, take us back to that list of maybe five or six things of the risk factors that you were quoting were like um, threefold chance of, um, premature. Can you just go through those risk factors real quick? So again, health.gov.au health. go and read it in black and white. So mm. what is described in that resource is that for the COVID-19 risk in pregnancy, mm. fivefold risk of a hospital admission at two to three times of needing ICU, threefold risk of being on a ventilator. That's what they have written. So again, this is everything that I'm saying here has got a reference and I would encourage people to go to that reference. And how did they come to they, that in, how did they come to that information? Say it's like fivefold risk of hospital admission. How did they come to to that? Because that could be for any reason. Is that that could be saying that um, you know, uh, when you're pregnant you're going to be more concerned. So that's obviously going to have more people going in and being admitted to hospital. Um, yeah. do you know so what I'm saying? When I, that it goes back to Joey's question about uh, real world safety data. Yeah. And uh, the reason for that is because it's not ethical to set up a trial of giving pregnant people COVID or not COVID. So all we've looked at is rates of hospitalization and looked at that in a comparative way between pregnant people and non-pregnant people, come up with those percentages and then put that out in a a simple fashion. You're right. It it sounds limited in that way, but that's what we have now. We have enough that a a regulatory framework can now recommend it on mass for Pfizer. Because it, it's like it can also be – because I see those factors as a preventative measure, um, but sometimes it could also be translated as something a bit scary, like, oh, if I'm pregnant and I take it, I'm more likely to end up on a ventilator because that, that, that could say two things. Um, the hospital has a protocol whereby they'll, they'll get you a ventilator quickly to reduce risk of you know, harm to you. Or what some people could also say it's more likely – that it's going to take effect and hold quicker. Therefore, I need a ventilator. Do you know what I mean? I, no. And I see the problem there with them not having real-world data, world, world data. So then they're trying to make it safer for pregnant women potentially. Um, but at the same time, it kind of heightens the anxiety around it. Yeah, I, I understand that. There's a few things that you said there. You're right. One, one is that it's not a lack of real-world data. It's a, a lack of... Um, a lack of uh, lab and clinical trials. Mm. And that comes behind the logistics and the ethics of doing something like that. So it comes from real world data. You're right. I, I want to be clear that those risks are what is needed is the, the increased risk of those events happening. Uh, it is not going to change likelihood of, of it doesn't mean you're more likely to 
for lack of any lack of better terms to jump the queue and you're not going to get that more quickly you'll be uh, put into a COVID pathway and treated uh, in the same fashion in a matter of urgency according to whatever state you come into hospital um, taking into account that you you're going to be at variable points in your pregnancy um, and that's going to have a difference in the decision making for delivery of the baby etc so you know if someone who's coming in at 20 weeks pregnancy is going to be very different to someone who's coming in at 38 weeks pregnancy. Um, again, I, I am reluctant to say much more because I, I don't have enough either experience in this area to be able to say that with, um, with authority. Uh, but they're the risks that are provided. And I think the thrust of the message isn't necessarily to, to scare, but it's to be transparent. And there is a perception where people go, I don't want to hear all that scary stuff. And I completely understand it because when people hear figures like that, it's only going to scare the hell out of people. But mm. what is more scary is to know things like that, withhold it from people and not be upfront about what the risks are. So giving people the full spectrum of what is there and saying this is designed so that you are clear about why we want to support you like this is infinitely going to be more beneficial than going, oh, don't worry about it. It is risky. So, uh, yeah, I want to be very clear that that was the intent behind it. But I'd encourage people to go to the source. Like everything I've said today, it's all good sport for me to say it. Go to the source and have a look at it as well. Yeah, cool. I know that the, that, that is, you know, you just said this is not an area you particularly want to, to, to riff on too much. Um, one last question on that in the pregnancy piece or, or, or um, the ability to get pregnant. Do you, are there any connections between um, having the vaccine and long-term infertility? Oh, there's a disproven link uh, because there was a similarity between the COVID spike protein and something called Syncytin-1, which helps placental development. Uh, that link's been disproven, so there's no effect on fertility. Sounds like at least to the best of my awareness. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, uh, I'm I'm happy to riff, but I just got to be very upfront about my limits. Of course. Mm. Um, okay, so when you when you say that, it's like there was some kind of research or some study that was showing yes, there is a link here, and then that was disproven. Is that that what is what I that, that is what I have been told? That's what I have read, and that is what has been provided to us. Okay. Yes, cool, correct. All right, so. Um, uh, I thought it was important in trying to find, trying to cover a spectrum of, of, of queries and concerns here that I had, you know, obviously a lot of the ones that came through were from people who are very much, I think, as we described, like, you know, um, they don't believe the government's out to get them. They, they inherently think that, that you know, the, that whatever, the government's acting on our best behalf. But they also have some reservations about the, this whole vaccine rollout and and you know and that was the concerns we've discussed um i thought i i should reach out to someone who who truly sits in the deepest depths of the internet and who since the beginning of covid has just been like all on that conspiracy end right and i say this because the, the this this person is a self-confessed conspiracy theorist right <laughs> they said you know they they're like nah you know you want to talk about Epstein, Trump, you know, it's all there, right? And so in any case, uh, respectfully, the, the person is a, is a friend of mine. And I, I was like, hey, you know, 
got Nando coming on the show. I know that what we're talking about is probably not going to convince you, <laughs> but I do want to know, like, do you have any kind of key questions that you'd like me to put forward? Um, and so he did, he, did prov- he did come up with a couple of questions. Um, so I th- then I thought I'd just throw those at you. And, and obviously, you know, these are some of the shit that I'm about to ask you. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, the first one is, um, Nando, do you know about myocarditis and do you know of its relation to the vaccine? Yeah, so there are cases of myocarditis and pericarditis that have been described with the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, it is generally self-limiting, but it means as a contraindication if you have suffered myocarditis or pericarditis with that vaccine that you should receive an alternative vaccine. Otherwise, the, the current recommendation is to take both doses of whatever you have been given first. What is myocarditis and or pericarditis? Yeah, inflammation of the heart muscle or inflammation of the coverings around the heart. Yeah, uh, I, I, yes. That it's came up documented and does exist. That came up for me actually because I, when I got my second, when I got both doses, I just sat there and just asked a few dumb guy questions like I am today, um, just just so I could know uh, it better. And, and I asked if there was any risks and if I needed to uh, be cautious. Am I going to get sick? I heard some people getting sick, and she said, um, "Yeah, she said, oh, don't do any strenuous exercise, uh, you know, for the next week." And I was like, oh, why? And she was like, oh, there is a, you could get myocarditis and your heart could swell up. I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, did you say swell up? Or what, how did you describe it? Uh, it's, it's inflammation, inflammation of the muscles of the heart. Yeah, she said um, I could get inflammation of the heart. And I, and I said, oh, okay, what does strenuous exercise mean then? Can I front lever? Yeah, pretty much. Was, you know, and I was like, because that's what I do. You know, and it was just funny because she wouldn't have mentioned it to me at all if I didn't ask her. Um, anyway, the term itself threw me off a little bit, and I, I dropped a set here and there this week. <laughs> Do you said that? <laughs> uh, just the 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 doctor who gave me my second injection. Right. Okay. Can you speak to? Um, so obviously that is like okay. You uh, if you if you like you don't want myocarditis. So if you are unlucky enough to experience that through the vaccine, that would be a, an unpleasant situation do you have any um figures or stats on how what the percentage of the population is that suffer from that as a result of taking the vaccine oh, i don't know anything other mm-hmm. than extremely rare okay yeah um i wasn't that concerned at the time i'm usually pretty easy going are you aware nando of what a cytokine storm is and and if so are you uh do you do you uh, are you aware of its effect uh, if you take the vaccine and how this cytokine storm can play out a few years down the track in the you know the medium term. Sure. I mean, cytokines are a means of, uh, a, is how inflammation happens as a process. So in other words, when you have something that needs to be fought and killed, like say bacteria, there is a means of trying to draw more white blood cells and more blood and more carriage to that area so that it can be destroyed, uh, which means that you open up, uh, you make blood vessels more leaky so that those cells can get to the area of injury. And where you know it's an infection, that you need to raise the, or what the body does is raises the temperature of the body to try and kill off that particular pathogen. And that involves cytokines. Now, the term cytokine storm as a term, I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, 
and its effect on us a few years down the track. So I think what it sounds like is uh, there is a pervasive, uh, uncontrolled inflammatory response as a result of this that will lead to long-term harm uh, as a result of the vaccine. And so our current understanding of it is that, no, that is not the case. But that's what cytokines are, and I can only extrapolate that's what the rest of it is from that. Yeah, I believe, um, I believe if I can, if I'm able to provide any more context, was that, um, yeah, this, this, this inflammatory effect relevant to the activity of the white blood cells, um, it somehow lays dormant for some period of time, and then at, at, a, at, a, time, at, a, period, at a time down the track, it activates or comes to the surface and this is the cytokine storm. You start bleeding from the eyes? Yeah, you turn to a horror movie. So, I mean, when you receive a vaccine, what you do produce are memory cells. So it means that when you uh, receive the disease or in, you know, in the case between the first and second dose, those are then activated and then produce much more of the antibody to be able to kill the relevant um, to, to kill that relevant antigen or pathogen. Um, the extent that that produces a storm or, uh, you know, produces that kind of harm, I, I can't speak to that. So but storm sounds talks, very clickable to me. Well, I think it, it sounds like there are several elements that have a process and they've been conflated together to form this term. So what I'd be interested in knowing is wh where are the origins of all of, of this theory and then probably it's going to be a case of unpacking each individual component and wondering at what point it became one long story. Because there is an idea of cells lie dormant in immunity. Yes, there is an idea of inflammatory response. There is an idea of when something comes along that it produces a sustained response. Whether it all gets kind of mushed together in that narrative, uh, I, I, I want to know more about it. But that's what it sounds like. I love every, how you give every idea um, airtime and like, you know, you, you approach it logically and you're trying to, you're trying to believe it, you know, you're just like, ah, throw that out the window. That's cool. Well, I think people just want to be understood or at least yeah. want to, at the very least want to be heard because when you can do that, then you can at least find some discourse. Um, I don't necessarily, I, I, I don't know, I've, I can believe that statement, but there may be some basis from there that involves, you know, investigation. Or if it means that people go, oh, well, yeah, if I think, you know, if you have that tipping point of undecided people that go, yeah, actually, now that I think through it, maybe I heard a bit of that or maybe I heard a bit of that. And, in fact, that's probably not right. may not undo the other five conspiracy theories, but <laughs> four's better than five when you've got a rapid internet connection. <laughs> Can you talk on... Um it's kind of the last, the last piece I got here on my on my long list. Do you, uh, I sent you those couple of links. Did you have a chance to to check out the couple of videos I sent? I did. Did you see the one that was the do the doctor in Indiana giving a, a presentation? Yeah, I did. Now I've I've seen a few people share it. It's a doctor presenting to a, a board of people. Um, he's very well spoken and you know and very very passionate and it's a very compelling video. And he's, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch going on there, but he's, he's, he's saying that masks don't work. I don't actually know what he's saying about the vaccine. Uh, but can you speak on that video at all? Because I know it was, I actually watched it a few nights earlier when a friend of mine shared it on Instagram. It was like, everybody has to watch this right now. You know, it's one of those ones where it's like, oh my God, like this changes everything. Um, can you speak to that? 
I mean, it was a, a six and a half minute video. Uh, and it just gave me more questions, to be honest. I mean, he, he got up and he said he was a functional family physician with special training in immunology and inflammation regulation, if I remember right. And I, I don't know what that is. And even if you became an immunologist, you probably would phrase your line of work as inflammation regulation. So it, it sounds like he's a, he's a GP with an interest in this area. Or he may be a GP who you know, either is interested in or advocates a number of either supplements or changes to diet or similar. Um, so I, I want to know who he is and exactly be very transparent about any conflict of interest or any particular allegiance or association that he's a part of, um, which may from their parent group either push a particular viewpoint or, or have some inherent bias about COVID. So you need to know enough about who this person is uh, until they just get up. And he said he would be a free pro bono expert when asked, etc. Um, that was the first concern. I mean, there's numerous studies that show that masking works, um, but for the purpose of uh, community transmission, what we have right now is it needs to be coupled with social distancing and hand hygiene because if you put a mask on and then touch your face numerous times, then it's the very area of infectivity that you're going to spread. So all of those measures need to be put in place uh, in order for it to be effective. So that's why when we're dealing with a COVID positive patient, you'll give it an N95 mask, a specific mask that is fit tested so that it, uh, it uh, prevents transmission to you. But then on top of that, you have uh, face protection, goggles, etc. So, you know, I mean, to, to say in isolation that masking doesn't work, well, there's a number of other things that are added to that componentry to make it effective. But one thing that is definitely very clear is that having masks reduces aerosolization. So even if you go, it works or doesn't work, what is the end point he's exactly talking about? So, I mean, yeah, the easy thing, the TLDR version is that masking does work and there's a lot of studies that back it up. But looking at the environment, there's a lot of other things that are coupled for it. Now, the other point he said is that doing all this vaccination changes none of this. Um, well, the crux is that it reduces chances of severe disease and it acknowledges that vaccinated people could still contract COVID. Um, he then goes on to, I mean, I think he said a lot, didn't he? Uh, he talks about ivermectin and zinc treatment making people better. Yep, ivermectin, um, it's, yeah, it's been a big one. Yeah, what is so, that? yeah, uh, British Medical Journal put out a very simple info, uh, infographic about this, which is the current evidence uh, is against for ivermectin, except in clinical trials. Uh, the hydroxychloroquine is, that a mala- is, is it a malaria treatment, ivermectin? Uh, hydroxychloroquine is ivermectin. I don't okay. know. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, I will find out, and should there be anything that robustly shows that, I'm, I'm happy to send it along. The hydroxychloroquine, yes, but the recommendation against it is strong. Um, then there's other what, what, treatments. What would be the reason for that if it were, you know, um, it, it, it should be saying, against it. Um, yeah, you're showing well, the same reason. It's shown to have a beneficial effect. Sorry, you say that. I just got cut off. Please say that again. With the hydroxychloroquine, are you saying that that, that has been shown to have a beneficial effect? However, the recommendation is against it? Uh, I think the current belief is that no, it doesn't have a beneficial effect and that the 
uh, side effect profile of it suggests that you shouldn't take it. So it's not only not a benefit, but potentially a risk of harm. Right. Um, and that's the same for remdesivir and ritonavir. There's recommendations against all those things. Uh, where there's severe or critical illness, there is some strong recommendation in favour of corticosteroids, but you'd be in hospital by then. Um, but he talks about, uh, yes, uh, ivermectin and zinc. Uh, I mean, given the mild response of the majority of people, I don't know the extent of association and causation, but he also said that vaccinated people post-COVID have two to four times the amount of side effects. And I don't know whether he means the number of side effects. Does he mean the extent of the side effects or how he's measured it? He did go on to say that all of it was contained on a flash drive, which, you know, had a real movie kind of theme <laughs> to it. But I think if that was the case, that's like a micro sport, but Yeah, exactly. And, and that's fine. Just put the flash drive out there and then let us look at it. Let it put it against whatever intellectual rigor we have and let's make a call on it. But that, that would be my, my first thoughts when I see that video, that there's a number of things that have been conflated together. There's a number of things that have been left fairly open-ended and you, you can't make any conclusion off that. And the other thing is you're going to make something generalizable for 25 million people. You just can't use rumble.com as a, as a source for that. What is rumble? It's my first exposure to it. No idea. Uh, yeah. It's, it's seeming a bit fringy, but, but I'll, I'll keep digging in there. <laughs> it's fine, but I mean, I, I, like everything, is go back to where did they get their info from, read that info, and then make a conclusion. The other thing I, I kind of want to mention as well is that where people talk about vaccination and side effects, um, you could actually argue that it's not really a side effect, it's an effect, because the people who would argue that in its own way, vaccines aren't really a drug, they're something that's administered and the rest of it's your immune response. So if you feel like you've got a fever, if you feel run down or whatever, it's simply your immune system exerting an effect. And, uh, you know, the antigens used in that are substantially less than the antigens or pathogens that you would encounter if you got the, if you got the actual disease. So, I mean, I, I think the reasons for calling it a drug is so that it goes through the same safety and regulatory uh, influence that, any other drug goes through. But I mean, if you take the example of Nurofen or ibuprofen, um, you know, if you cut your hand, uh, a series of chemicals amplify inflammation there. And so ibuprofen dampens that so that you don't have as much pain, but those same receptors are also thickening the lining of your stomach. So where you have an effect on multiple receptors. And so you have a tummy ache when you have your Nurofen, that's a side effect. Whereas in this case, you give a vaccine, your immune system takes hold and does something with it. That's an effect. So just food for thought there. When he talks about side effects and amount of them, it's, it's an immune response. I'm going to choose not to watch that video. I think I've taken enough from this discussion. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, I suppose we could, we could kind of go into, you know, maybe to wrap it all up, the... Perhaps just, you know, the, the extent of how much stuff is out there and, and um, how if you do get on a particular tangent, it's so easy for you to just find stuff that supports exactly what that tangent is, you know. And, and, and obviously there's other tangents that will be completely counter to that, but YouTube's not going to take you there. Facebook's not going to take you there. You, you know, you've got to go find it, don't you? So it's, yeah, we're, it's, a very, it's a very interesting time where we have access to so much information 
uh, not all of it necessarily good, but also we have so much fucking time on our hands right now um, that, you know, you're getting experts pop up sort of left, right and center. What are you, you know, what are your, what are your sort of views on that, Nando? As someone who comes from, uh, you know, you come from an industry and a, and a career where you have to be able to reference what it is that you're saying. You have to be able to back it all up. Um, you know, science is kind of at the, at the, the, the center of, of what you do. Um, how do you, what do you make of all that? So, I mean, we, we briefly discussed it. So a mate of mine who said that, you know, science actually comes from the Latin scientia, means knowledge. So what that means is that this is the best available information that we currently have. And the reason why it's so easy to attack science is because it's fundamentally couched in uncertainty. So this is the best thing we have at this point in time and that we are prepared to change that viewpoint as further information evolves and that we will take that on board and provide the best available information we have now. Now, the, the, the thread that runs through that is that there's consistency. Um, but there will be slight changes and if people don't like changes, that's why they go, oh, I don't want to know the science of it. But that's the transparent answer. You're right. I think as well, when it comes to YouTube, you have uh, an algorithm that will give you more of what you want to see. So it fuels several types of bias. I mean, you have confirmation bias, which is reading info that you already agree on. You've got an, 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 an ostrich bias where you can, choose to ignore negative information. There's a choice supporting bias. So you can notice advantages of a purchase or a choice you've already made. There's a selective perception. There's noticing more of what you want to notice. Um, there's a survivorship bias. So an example is that, uh, you know, this, the example that's often given here is um, five things that millionaires do every day. And it's like these things. And it's like, well, there's a bunch of people that did them that it just didn't work. There's a bunch of people who, millionaires that it, it doesn't work but you found a small group of people for which it works and therefore you think that's going to work for everyone and it just doesn't so the, the way to work through this would be to read multiple sources to actually look at that source that's contrary to what you believe and try and look at that on its merits because in the same way that you, you look at the whole if the if a person who disagrees with you makes five points and one of them's valid, or at least has some validity to it, then it doesn't mean you suddenly reject the person. It means suddenly, oh, you you've actually you've got to look into this, and to look at it in a neutral way means that you can look at the you can look at information with the most clarity. And we come back to the point of of vaccine hesitancy in the first place. So uh, there's, there's a great book on this called calling the shots why parents reject vaccines. And it was a sociologist, Jennifer Reich, that, and she's done a Ted talk. If you, uh, if you want to watch that, but like everything, the book's better than the movie. And, uh, and it's this idea of this mixed message between, uh, having that individual decision and that everything I do is something that's individual versus, uh, just take this thing on for the sake of social good. And one of the reasons for, that being the case is especially uh, mothers are told that uh, if you take care of someone's health, then if you take care of your child's health, sorry, let's make it clearer, then you're a good mother. And if the child becomes sick or gets cancer, then you're a bad mother or your parenting is ineffective. And so there's this tremendous pressure to be able to perform at whatever is a societal standard. And you're constantly told that you need to make an individual decision. 
and it's acknowledged for those parents that they are the they they know their child's details more intimately than anyone else. And so it comes down to this idea that my intuition is going to be superior in line with making an individual choice. I mean, I do it when I choose the foods that I buy or the schools that I send my kid to, why should this be any different? And then we have conflict. So the first thing is really to acknowledge that there's uncertainty and to stop marketing these vaccines as if they're only for an individual benefit. Because right now, when you are told that oh, it should be an individual decision, um, it's not like whether you take Panadol or not. This is something which is going to have a direct community herd effect. And this is one of the very few times that trying to do something that has a benefit for someone else um, actually directly benefits you. Because it means that if you can do something that will end lockdown, then you get your, you, you increase your own freedom. And the, remember, the other thing is that one of the reasons why vaccination works is because despite the group of people that have vaccine, vaccine hesitancy, overwhelmingly people want to vaccinate and that vaccination rates are strong. And given that most of the things we vaccinate for require 80, 90% vaccination rates to maintain herd immunity, it means that most people are still going to buy in. It's just simply telling them that this is not a bespoke boutique decision. This isn't a, a new crazy thing that was just rushed through. And we want to put it into you just so that, you know, because we've got nothing better to do. It, it's, it's a deliberate decision to try and reduce COVID-related harm. And with the best knowledge we have now, given a country that was cut off from the rest of the world, that is now going through an active outbreak, this is the best thing we can do for you. When it, when it comes to people going, I'm, I'm hanging out for Pfizer or Moderna, the thing you're hanging out for is here right now. And the advice has changed that where there is an outbreak is to take whatever vaccine you can have as soon as possible and, and be as fully vaccinated. That's why the schedule has changed from 12 weeks to four to eight weeks. It's acknowledged if you do this, you'll get people off a ventilator. And that's really what it is, acknowledging uncertainty to stop blaming people uh, for decisions that are inherently out of their control and then realising that it's a social contract that's a, a part of every every one of us means that you can actually get that selfish benefit. you just got to help the herd out. That's a really interesting point, um, how it's framed publicly where it's like, um, it, yeah, it's not, it's not really about you because you're probably going to be all right, but it's about this greater you know, doing something for the greater good. Um, I find that very fascinating because a lot of, like a lot of the, you know, a common theme in some of those questions is like, this thing doesn't actually seem that threatening to me. So why, why do I want to inject, why do I want to get this thing injected? But if it's like, no, 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 it's not about you. Mm. It's about everybody making it through and, and, you know, us getting back to whatever, some kind of relative normality. I really enjoyed how you put all that because um, I have been uh, pretty frustrated with some opinions and, you know, I told you guys I, I've been vaccinated and I, I know that that's the way out of this thing, um, as in, you know, the lockdown and the restrictions that we're currently in, um, which is causing other bits of harm for people in the mental health space and otherwise. Um, but it just, it really helps me think about, um, you know, well, today's chat really has helped me think about the whole thing, actually, and I, I know for sure I'll go away and... Um, have a discussion with Joe and it'll help me 
continue the conversation with other people, but just this idea of um, it not necessarily being for the individual. And I guess that's what I, I get frustrated with when uh, when people are, are they're, they're, they're hesitant, then they're, they're not wanting it, just straight up anti. Um, and it's like, dude, can't you see, um, you know, that we need it for the whole group? Like it, I, I do feel it's, it's pretty selfish um, and, you know, that's just being straight up. I was talking well, to a guy the other day. You go, sorry, sorry, Joe. Oh, no, I was talking with the guy the other day and he, he was like, you know, had a big rant about it and you know, how it can't work and whatever and, you know, and how fucking sucks the lockdown. And then we asked him about the vaccine. He's like, um, yeah, fuck, I don't, I don't want to take the vaccine. They've rushed it out, blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of ended with, um, ah, look, I'll, you know, I'll take it, but I'll be the last guy to take it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, you want to get back to work. Like, you're telling me you want these things. This thing here is the key to get back to it. If you do it now, like if you're going to fucking do it, just do it now. Like mm. don't be the last guy. You know what I mean? I mean, we've got a culture where you have on-demand TV and you have takeaway meals that are made to order. Why should anything else be any less bespoke? And remember, that's the narrative that's created. And if, if you're looking at someone with a lot of scrutiny and blaming every decision that they've made, then it's hardly surprising that people will go, well, as long as I'm okay, why should I care what happens to the kid two towns over? And one of the only thing that, um, that really holds up in the, you know, very uh, sort of fringe group of the anti-vax movement is there is acknowledgement that people go, well, I, I'm, I'm happy for other people to accept the risk um, but I just don't want it to happen to my kid. But it's essentially free riding off the fact that there is herd immunity in order to be able to allow that decision to exist. But if you took away the blame and if you took away that idea of, oh, you're selfish or that this is self-centred and simply say it's like the act that you are deciding is not going to be subject to that scrutiny that we put everyone through, then you take away that pressure of, I just want to do what I think is right. And it actually makes you more inclined to, you know, stick a limb out for someone else knowing it'll directly benefit you. I got one last question. This kind of jumping back in. Do you mind if we just go back into one techie question? I don't want to wrap up before. Of course. I don't want to miss it. Um, uh, so this one is a question regarding uh, vaccines with mRNA technology. Um, yeah. and, and, and this is, I'll read the question as it's written. The reliance on the spike protein to induce immunization carries with it the risk of the protein not dissolving and carrying itself through the lipid nanoparticles into contact with delicate cells or other areas of the body, such as the spinal cord or brain neurons. Uh, is this a legitimate concern or is it incredibly rare or is it untrue? I think that has uh, taken a lot of concepts and, and put them together in a way that's not quite correct because there's no protein that's injected into the body. It's the mRNA itself that is then entered into the cells and then uh, the, the spike protein is generated. So if the, qu the question, I guess, the best way to answer it is to look at the, the fidelity of the vaccine and that means that you need to have storage at minus 70 degrees and you need to have it preserved in that manner that will actually work. But uh, the question sounds like you said that the reliance on the spike protein to reduce immunization. To induce immunization. To induce immunization. 
He said there was a, means there's a risk of the protein not dissolving. No, uh, no. So the, let me just talk about what happens and I'll see if that answers the question. So you inject an mRNA particle, it fuses with the cell, uses the machinery of the cell to then produce a spike protein, and then the immune response goes from there. So uh, it means that it's the human cell itself that will produce that spike protein and it gets recognized by the immune system. So uh, it's not going to make any contact with the spinal cords or neurons or anything like that. There's no direct effect with neural tissue. But I think it sounds like it's, it's just confused a lot of concepts. Um, so that line of questioning doesn't bear out as to how the vaccine actually works. Another quality response. <laughs> that's, uh, that's been pretty epic today, Nando. I, um, I, I think it's a great place to wrap it there. Was there anything that you wanted to add, you know, to close this, this, this conversation with? I don't think so. I think we've covered it already. It's that break. The decision has been made that the way forward is to be vaccinated as quickly as possible in whatever means are available. We've had issues with vaccine shortages, um, and I I think that's been well and truly acknowledged. But now that we have a supply of something that will keep you off a ventilator, just get it in whatever manner that you can as quickly as possible. That's the best info that we know. Virtually everything we've talked about is freely available and please do go and, and check it out. As I, I begin, I, I end as I began, I'm, I'm not an expert in these specific areas, but this is easy enough to interpret. Would you be able to provide us links? Obviously, you got them from very simple, easy accessible website, but could you provide us links to those? We'll put them in the show notes. So if anyone does want to verify any of that information, they can they can go there and do the research for themselves. Yeah, of course. I mean, health.gov.au and then look at COVID-19. It's all there. I guarantee you no one is going to go look through that. I think that's been the problem. I mean, a lot of what we've talked about today uh, uh, is available through a lot of other sources, but because there's an audience here that we can capture through talking about something that has been talked about in another place or through another podcast or through another medium, and if that clarifies the information, then we've done some good out of it. I think when we talked about it, that was the main reason for doing this. Yeah, it was. You, 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 would, you and I had both been having, and Paul, two conversations with people that we found ourselves kind of, it was the same sort of repetitive thing. And it was like, yeah, it was, it was Nando's idea. And I got to thank you for that. Um, you said, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm providing this same information to people. Would we be able to get together and just have the chat on the podcast so that I can just say it once and as many people want to hear it, they can hear it. Um, sure. when do you think the Sydney lockdown is going to end based on what you've seen with, uh, you know, available vaccinations and the way that they're rolling it out and what's your call? I have no idea and no answer that I would give today would be helpful. Come on. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, okay. Um, who's going to win the bachelor? Is, is that the show that you watch? No, I, I watched I watched Beauty and the Geek. And Beauty and the Geek, who's going to win it? I have no idea. I've never seen it, but I've seen the I, ads. I, who's your, who's <laughs> your call? For the listeners who do, who's going to win? Of the, sorry, say that again. It just got cut off. Who's going to win Beauty and the Geek? Oh, it's already over. Oh, it's already okay. over. I, I, I don't <laughs> want to say who the winner is, but on, you know, I mean, you can watch it online at your leisure. You can I watch mean, the transformation. You can watch the makeover. It's all there. The I do not work. For obviously, that show. the ones that are winning, right? <laughs> all of them. 
They're all winners. Um, I mean, I suppose if you had a scruffy beard and, you know, change your complete clothing and hairstyle, you, you too could be a geek, but I suspect it would um, be uncovered very quickly. <laughs> Mate, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate you making the time and, and, and I know you did a lot of research in preparation for, for that. Um, I think we recorded for a couple of hours. That, that was really epic. Um, appreciate the work that you do. Uh, it's a bummer that we can't roll together and see you in the gym, but I look forward to when we can connect face-to-face again and get training. Me too. Yeah, 100%. I would love to come back to the gym. Thank you, guys. And yes, um, I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure it'll put details up, but Arnon is me. Ah, uh, yes, you're breaking up a little bit now. Projects and messaging and similar. I didn't talk to you guys first. That was, sorry, you broke up a little bit there, but that was your Instagram handle, right? Anand is me. Yeah. All right. That's it. Yeah, folks, if you want to get it, Nando, you're not going to see a lot of medical stuff there. You're going to see mostly delicious recipes and incredible experimentation with dips. Oh, I mean, I, I just put that because I think we talked about this last time. You always ask people who are on here, like, how do we contact you? I'm like, uh, I don't know what you want to contact me about, but it's there for funsies. <laughs> Mate, you're a legend. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. See you, Nando. Thanks. Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you want any help with, with any of this, if you want to talk to us, if you want help with your training, get at us, junglebrothers.com. Um, obviously, uh, great to have people like Nando on the show. Hopefully, you got something from that episode that gave you some new things to think about relevant to this situation that we're all navigating. And indeed, we are all navigating it. This is, this is new territory. So, um, you know, it, uh, whatever. If, if we can provide any further clarity on any of the things Nando said, um, you can you can get in touch with us and we'll put you in touch with him or you can go straight to him at Anandi's Me on Instagram. Um, if you did find something in that episode that resonated with you, please share it with a friend uh, because I, I think there is, um, particularly at this moment in time, it's the, 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 the more uh, tr- exchange of quality information we can have, um, the better off we're going to be collectively, the health mentally and physically of all of us. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Nando. Thank you, Paul. See you all next time. Thanks so much.